Good day, Mike. Yeah, we're glad to be back, and it's really, really good to be back. We were in Australia, as you know, Singapore first for the weekend, did programs in Singapore. We were in a uh, university and a uh, church on Sunday, a non-denominational Christian church on Sunday in Singapore, had fantastic responses to the perspective. And then we flew to Australia, where we did programs, I can't even remember how many, it was just almost every day, in Perth, um, at Avondale, and at Brisbane. And... I just wish you all could have been there to see the response and the resonance that people have for this perspective. When, before we went down, we had a few, we had a few email friends um, that uh, have been following along with us, and we'd been, you know, commiserating with their stress because several of them had let us know that uh, when they tried to teach this in their classes down there, they were told they couldn't teach anymore and, and they couldn't speak in the church anymore, and, and several had, had actually been booted out of two or three churches, and, and this was going on to a few of our friends. And, then, and so they were getting discouraged that there weren't many people down there who loved this perspective. When I went down there, the hundreds, literally hundreds of people came out who had been following and appreciating this message, and, and they came to the programs, and, and now they were able to network, and they were just so excited to see, wow, there's a lot of people who love this message. And, and then when I spoke at one of the churches down there, it was packed on, on, on Sabbath morning. And I did a seminar, a three-part seminar. The first one at the, at the Sabbath school time went off without any trouble. Uh, the second talk, which is one you guys haven't heard yet, it's a new talk called Designer or Dictator, an Exploration of God's Law and Justice. Um, and just before I was to go on, the power went off in the whole region. And, um, and the uh, pastor there said that they hadn't lost power in that part of Australia in 20 years. And first time that's happened. But, hey, we're in Australia. No worries. One of the guys run out, gets to his car, uh, gets an inverter, brings in a portable projector, and hooks it to his car. Is his car running? And, um, got him. Okay, and had his car running, and, uh, and powers it up. We got the image, and it's showing right up there, and the bulb burns out on the projector. But no worries. We're in Australia. So another guy runs out, gets himself a portable projector, gets a, a portable generator, and a, another portable projector comes in, sets it up, and, and we're rolling. And so we did the whole program. And after we finished that program, there was a moment of just stunned silence. And then the church just erupted into applause. They were so moved by this perspective of God. And uh, so we're very excited. We have a real strong support system down there now. And we're in the process of establishing a distribution hub for Come and Reason Ministries materials that we're going to be uh, distri- distributing down there. So I want to give special thanks to, to uh, Cocteau Yip uh, and his wife Roxana and Carolyn Lim. Singapore for all they did to help make it happen. And then Simon Harrison, uh, who worked incredibly hard. And Simon, if you're watching right now, thank you. It's uh, 1025 tonight where Simon is right now. Thank you guys for what you did. And Simon is also the person who did the artwork in my new book. So you see the little image of the brain? Simon did that and, uh, and donated that. So we're really happy with that. And then Simon's wife, Wendy, uh, just wanted to say thanks to the class. So she sent uh, uh, some, some little gifts back. And I'm going to pass them around. You can take one per family. I don't know if there's enough to go around. But she sent some little Australian gifts. Either a little fridge magnet with Australia or a little boomerang with Australia stuff on it. So we'll pass those around. And you guys can take one per family. <laughs> okay? And that's from uh, Wendy uh, Harrison. So thank, thank you, Wendy. And then you can see that this is a spiritual battle, and your prayers were very helpful in keeping open the channels and the doors. We've got some more events coming up I want to put, you, put on your prayer list for us. This Friday I'm going to be speaking um, on September 6th at the National Boomers Conference uh, right outside Dallas, at, sponsored by the Texas Baptist Convention. And so um, put that on your list. On September 11th through 14th, myself and nine others from our class, uh, Laurie and Peter Cooper, Tim and Brittany Ryder, Christy Jennings, uh, Tamara Slocum, Stephanie Land, Dean and Zoe Scott will be at the American Association of Christian Counselors World Convention in Nashville, where they'll have over 7,000 Christian pastors and counselors in attendance. I'll be doing two programs there. We will have a, uh, a, a booth where we'll be giving away uh, the stuff that you guys can get right here, uh, DVD sets, my first book, and all these other materials we'll be giving away and, and interacting with to kind of promote this message. So remember that in your prayers. October 1... Um, Come and Reason Ministries is partnering with J103 for a pastor's breakfast here in Chattanooga, expecting four to 500 pastors from this, from this city and this region, and we'll be providing them with our materials, and so we're going to do that. And then October 15, Come and Reason Ministries is partnering with the Men's Ministries Network and J103 to, for Mobilize Chattanooga, one man at a time, evening with Ben Carson here in Chattanooga. So uh, we'll be there doing that as well. And if you listen to J103, you've already heard some radio ads for 
um, either our class, uh, Mental Health Minutes, my, my uh, new book, all these things are up because of our partnering for these programs. They're giving us some free airtime to put some of these things on. Yes. So you can see the Lord is really moving. It's very exciting is what's happening. So keep all this in your prayers and, and let's go ahead and then begin class today with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love, for the way you run your kingdom, truth, love, and freedom, for the methods that you use, for your grace and patience with us. We ask that your spirit will join us this morning and lighten our minds. May we, may we have discernment and we experience your presence. May the fears and insecurities that plague us be driven away by this confidence in knowing you. Give us the ability to love each other as you've loved us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number 11 in the uh, quarterly, Revival and Reformation. The title is Reformation Thinking New Thoughts. The memory text is Colossians 3, 1 and 2. And it says, If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. What does it mean in the text about being raised with Christ? What's that referring to? If you were raised with Christ. You, you, you had Mary as your mother and you raised up in the home with them together? Resurrection. Is that what it's talking about? You were raised with him? What is, what is it referring Resurrection, he said. Yeah, resurrection. So raised with Christ and resurrection, how were you resurrected? In the newness of life. Ah, so being reborn. reborn. Having a new heart. Going down metaphorically, symbolically into the watery grave, but coming up a new creature. That's the symbolism for what it's talking about, which is actually dying to the way of fear and selfishness and having a heart that loves God and others. That's really what it's talking about. Do you see a connection between being raised with Christ and where you focus your mind? Can we focus our minds, can the mind even be set on heavenly things without being raised on Christ, raised with Christ? Can you really come to know heavenly things without having some, some change within? You can pursue it, you can understand, but can you really know it? I don't think you can. What about, what's the danger if you have been raised with Christ? You had had that transformation and you don't focus on heavenly things. You spent your time focusing on other things. What's the danger? By beholding, we become changed. By we become changed. That's exactly right. First paragraph, I really like this first paragraph. It says, Isaac Watts is credited with more than 750 hymns, many of which are sung by thousands of Christians today. On occasion, a parade was held in London uh, in Watts' honor. People thronged the streets to get a glimpse of the famous man. As a car- his carriage passed under a balcony filled with spectators, one lady was astonished at the, the short elderly man, now hunched over an old age, that had written all these hymns. She, she shrieked, what? You're Isaac Watts? Watts motioned for the carriage to stop. He stretched himself to his full frame, exclaimed, Madam? I could in fancy grasp the pole, uh, madam, could I in fancy grasp the poles or hold creation in my span? I would still be measured by my mind, for the mind is measure of a man. <laughs> like, take that! <laughs> but isn't it true? The mind is the measure of a person. It really is, the mind. How much of our society really truly emphasizes developing the mind versus the body? Do you know how many patients come see me because they have issues with their body? What's really, what really matters, though, is the mind, isn't it? Yeah. Do we emphasize that in the church, developing the mind, or do we emphasize living a lifestyle, keeping a set of rules? Developing the mind, doesn't that mean developing capacities for discernment, for thinking? You know, it says in Hebrews 5.14, the mature are those who develop by practice. By practice, the ability to discern the right from the wrong. It it, it is an ability we get by exercise. If we don't, um, in the second paragraph, um, let's see if I'm, yeah, second paragraph, it says, Isaac Watts was right. The mind is the measure of a man, and reformation is about our minds. If we have a reformation if we have a reformation in our thinking, we will have a reformation in our actions. Reformation occurs as the Holy Spirit brings our thoughts into harmony with Christ's thoughts. What do you think it means to bring our, our thoughts in harmony with Christ's thoughts? It's a nice statement. What does it mean? Agreement. Agreement. At one moment. Okay, that's a motive, a heart attitude, sure. Um, if we don't keep our thoughts in harmony with Christ, but we still claim to be Christian, 
What might our thoughts trend upon? We're claiming Christian, and we're not talking about the agnostic who rejects Christ. They're not even trying to keep it. But the person who says, I'm a Christian, but their thoughts are not kept in harmony with Christ. Concerned with self. Okay, and, and, and of course, that does take all the classic self-preoccupations of worrying about what others think of us, whether we're going to get that job, worry about the future, worry about whether we have control of them, plotting, planning, calculating, all the things. Of course, that's, that's the obvious. I want it more subtle. How about these thoughts? I think these are thoughts that are in harmony with Christ or not. I hope there isn't some sin I've committed that will keep me out of heaven. Harmony with Christ or not? How many Christians have that running through their head every day? Or, will God be mad at me if I watch this or eat that? Harmony with Christ or not? Notice the question. It's not about what you watch or what you eat. It's about, will God be mad at me? If I do this, can I, I can't help this person on Sabbath because I would break the commandment and sin. Do you not understand the principle of that idea? I'm more worried about me sinning than helping you. I can't be friends with homosexuals because they are sinners and I'm going to keep myself pure and follow Bible standards. Are these thoughts in harmony with Christ, you think? So, if our thoughts are brought into harmony with Christ, do we live in fear of sinning? This is the, this is the point. This whole gospel that people spend their entire life living, I'm afraid of committing sin. I'm afraid of stumbling. I'm afraid of... Where's the entire focus? On who? Self. When we come into harmony with Christ, where does our focus turn? To God and to others. This, this, this whole, so this, there's, there's an entire system that is teaching people godly thoughts or selfish Christian thoughts. Yes? I was going to just add that because not only is that individual who is enslaved to that, but then you propagate that. Yes. And expect it from others, and that's selfish towards them as well. Yes, and this is what we keep promoting, this idea. Oh, how about living in fear, and fear of falling short and being punished by God? How about this one? The classic Adventist historic anyway, and it's still out there because when I was in Australia, I asked if anybody's, and this was still out there. I hope I don't have to stand without an intercessor in heaven. Is that a godly thought? Really? Yes, what were you going to say? No, the true love casts out fear. Yes, true love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear, yes. How about these thoughts? Would these be more, more along the lines of harmony with Christ? Awesome are your ways, O oh God. Amazing are your designs. I'm so overwhelmed with your goodness and humbled by your love. Or, how can I share your beauty and love with others? Or, what can I do to relieve someone's, someone else's burdens? Or, thank you, God, for the blessings you have provided. Or, God, thank you for the opportunity to help this person on your Sabbath day. And many, many more. But do you see the focus shift? It's no longer about me. It's about him and what I can do to help others. It shifts. Sunday, first paragraph, says our thoughts will ultimately dictate our behavior. The way that we think influences the way we act, and the converse is also true. Repeated actions influence our thoughts. The Christian is a new creation. Old, th- old patterns, old thinking patterns have been replaced by new ones. Supposed to be a true Christian. That would be true. Yeah. There's a lot of truth in that paragraph, but to me it goes even much deeper than this. It's much deeper than, than just our thoughts. We're influenced not only by our thoughts, but by our feelings, our attachments, our relationships, our imagination, our beliefs, our morals. We're influenced by all of these things in in addition to our thoughts. Some of those thoughts are involved with, but some of them they're not. In my experience, it's the feelings, emotions that are the that are the primary source of difficulty for most people. And it's dysfunctional emotions that infect the thinking and then start dysfunctional thinking. It says, and the Bible supports me on this, by the way, James chapter 1, that no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt, nor are we tempted, but we are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. Yeah. But it is true that all of our experiences are processed or not, <laughs> because some people don't process through our thoughts. I mean, 
if we're going to make any changes in any aspect of our life, generally we do need to think about it. We need to identify what the issues are, what the opportunities, what the pros, what the cons, the, 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 the right, the wrong, the, the, all these things, and then ultimately make a decision. So it does require thinking. So do you ever analyze your thinking processes? What tools do you use to determine if your thoughts and your methods for thinking are healthy? How can you tell if what you believe is reliable? My first book, Could It Be This Simple?, which is out on the table for free for anybody who wants one, was designed to help people learn how to think, to process through emotions, to come to put their mind in balance with their good judgment in charge. Have you spent the time to develop that ability? I highly also recommend the integrative evidence-based approach. Examine what you believe in light of scriptures, first thread. Test your beliefs in the laws of nature, second thread. Use your experience, third thread, to test cause and effect. Ask in your mind, okay, the things I believe to be true, are they supported by all three threads? Pray to God for wisdom and insight. Discuss and study with other people. Get their perspective. These are all tools, methods to help you. Any comments? Anybody want to share what's helped them and their thought processes? Well, it's helpful to know it's not an instant process. Yeah. Um, you know, like they said, you know, your, your old thinking patterns have been replaced by new ones. That's not right away. That's your heart changes. So you have a desire for new processes. Yes. But the thinking patterns have to be worked on. Yes, and that you know that process in me that does that. She said it's not instantaneous. You, you can have a change of heart instantaneous. You can have a momentary conversion where your heart changes and you no longer want to live the old life. You now want to live for God and others, but that doesn't mean all the habit patterns that you've done for your whole life to that point and all the old thought processes you've done to that whole point are now instantly changed as well. That takes the, the practice day in, day out of surrender, walking the, the healthy road, choosing day in, day out, the new process, saying no to the old. And do you know that whole process? She's right. You know that whole process you're describing? If you do it, results in rewiring of your brain. This is why it takes time. Your brain structurally will change based on how you determine which circuits are firing. third paragraph as we behold jesus in his word we are changed new thoughts replace old ones by beholding him we become more like him it is a law i love these laws okay uh these these i notice this kind of law it's a law both in the intellectual and spiritual nature that by beholding we become changed is that imposed or natural that's a design protocol that's the way it's built it just happens this way it's not some external rule that requires an authority to to push and make that happen the mind gradually adapts itself to the subjects upon which it is allowed to dwell. It becomes assimilated to that which it is accustomed to love and reverence. Man will never rise higher than the standard of purity or goodness or truth, than his standard of purity, goodness, and truth. Um, if self is his loftiest ideal, he will never attain to anything more exalted. Rather, he will constantly sink lower and lower. The grace of God alone has power to exalt man. Left to himself, his course must inevitably be downward. Agree or disagree with this? It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And this, this goes back to then the whole idea of, of what you worship. What do you worship? Everyone worships something. Might not be God. But it's a looking outside of yourself for a frame of orientation that gives your life meaning, direction, and purpose. Everybody has it. Some it's a scientific method. It's evolutionary theory. It's power. It's money. The American Idol. Whatever. But whatever you're looking to, it changes you. Especially a false god. Yes, especially a false god. So Paul tells us in Romans, actually, on that thought, Romans 1, he says that when we exchange the truth of God for a lie, our minds become dark and depraved and futile. He's saying the same thing. He doesn't say when you exchange the truth of God for a lie, and he says it three times, prefer images made to your own hands and the truth about God. He says it over and over. He doesn't say then God gets angry and God will then punish you or God will have a judicial finding and, and impose things. He doesn't say that. He says your mind becomes dark and depraved and futile. It is a natural, just like it says here, a natural result of rejecting the truth that your mind changes downward. It's destructive to us to do this. We accept God concepts that incite fear 
And all false God concepts incite fear. We damage ourselves. We activate the fear circuits, have false guilt. Ultimately, we disrupt brain networks. We cause inflammatory cascades. We shorten our lives, have higher rates of dementia, higher rates of depression. It all can be documented. And then we become more self-referenced because when we're fear, when you're afraid, where does fear turn your attention? So we want to be defended against that. We don't want to be afraid. We don't want to be punished. We don't want bad things to happen, so we need defenses against that. So how do we defend ourselves against this when we, when we accept the idea that God is, a, is, a, is an imperial dictator who's put rules on us, and, if we, and we've all broken those rules, and now in justice he has to inflict punishments on him. When we accept these distortions, accept them, it scares us. So how do we de- protect against it? We create theologies. Theologies designed, I'm going to show them to you, designed to hide us from God. We don't want him to see us. We want to be hidden. Because we don't trust him. Because we're afraid of him. But as long as we're hidden and all our sins are hidden, well then, we're good because he can't touch us. Now, classic, here's, here's some of them. Covered by the robe of his righteousness, taken to mean that when God looks at us, he can't see our wickedness because the robe of Christ's righteousness covers our wickedness. He's hiding us. Or, covered by the blood means that Jesus covers our defects and God can't see them. Or, the blood of Jesus is applied to our records in heaven and our sins are erased from the record books. So God has no accounting now and he can't have judicial finding against us because it's not there. It's been erased. Or, God doesn't have a memory. Memory's kind of bad. <laughs> the, the sins have been forgotten. When we confess, he, he throws them east and, and they're forgotten. doesn't remember. Or that Jesus died to propitiate and appease his father. And he stands between us and the wrath of his father to hold back the anger. You notice every one of these theories has a, at its core this idea that we want something to hide us or in, 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 in between us and God because we're afraid of him. Fear is the motivator. Self-protection is the motivator. We're trying to protect self. But the truth is much different. You can take every one of those things I said and you can see it in a different light, through a different lens, that God is always on our side. God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare us up but gave him up. How we not with him give us all things? That God was working through Christ to redeem, heal, restore mankind back to his ideal. That the, we have an enemy of man, but our enemy is not God. God is not our enemy. God is our friend. And the metaphors, all those metaphors can be rightly understood. And I'll give you one, one example. This is out of a book called Christ Object Lessons. See if you agree with this author on the robe of righteousness. Only the covering which Christ himself, this is page 311, only the covering which Christ himself has provided can make us meet or capable to appear in God's presence. This covering, the robe of his own righteousness, Christ will put on every repenting, believing soul. Let's keep reading. This robe, woven in the loom of heaven, has not one thread of human devising. Christ in his humanity wrought out a perfect character, and this character he offers to impart to, to us. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged with his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed in the garment of his righteousness. Then, as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. And what do you hear here? Is it a covering? It's a transformation, regenerational, recreation, rebuilding, healing, restorative process that's real and literal. We actually think new thoughts, have new motives, have new principles, come to love God and others more than self. It's real. But we have this other thing out there that actually just it deludes millions to think that there is no transformation, there's only legal pardon. And they continue to live this fear-based, insecure life, hoping against hope they won't have to stand before the judge without an intercessor. And, you know, that was written when you and I went to school here. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was already in print. Well, why was it not presented? This, oh, this stuff. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that, that quote you done, yes. You just quoted it. Yeah, it's, it's been, been, been in print for 130 years. When I was in school, the same thing. Yeah, I, I see several hands going up. Several things. Why was this not presented? Was it the other ideas presented? And you know why. Because Christianity... What, nine, 1,700 years ago or something, got infected with an imposed law construct and believed God is like an imperial dictator. 
just as Daniel prophesied, they would seek to change the law. And now God's law is no longer the natural law of love that he built things to operate upon. It's a set of rules, and he's got to punish. And we've got this whole distortion going on. Do you like the idea of being healed, restored, regenerative? Do you see why when God looks, according to this author, when God looks now he sees the robe of righteousness, do you see why? It's in you. And what, is all the, what do all the New Testament things say? I'll write my law on your skin like a tattoo. So I want, No, in your heart. I'm going to write my law on your heart. You'll be reborn, have the mind of Christ, be regenerated. Uh, the, old, the heart of stone is taken out, the heart of flesh is put in. No longer I live, but Christ lives in me. All of the metaphors are the same. It's actual transformational in the heart and mind of the believer. What'd you say? She said it makes you feel different too. Absolutely. I can tell you, I used to live in fear. I don't live in fear anymore. Yes? Can I just underscore what you said a couple of times about how the metaphors can be rightly understood depending upon your understanding of God and his nature and his character? Absolutely. We did the one of righteousness. We'd throw another one out there, the blood. Jesus said in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. He's speaking metaphorically, but he's bringing it a little closer to home, and they stumbled on it. And he's bringing it closer to home because he's changing where you apply it. See, they were applying it into a building or a tent. And many Christians take that and they translate it into a heavenly building and you apply it to inanimate objects, record books and these things. And that's where the blood's being. Christ said, no, 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 no. You apply it to the spirit temple. And the blood is a metaphor. It says in Leviticus, the life is in the blood. Unless you internalize me, Unless you partake of me, unless, just like we read, my thoughts become your thoughts. You live my life. We have to have Christ in here. That's what the application, same metaphor, just, I mean, same, same end product, same reality, different way to express it. Yes, on our online. Uh, Mike asks, could believing a false God produce genuine love, or is it evidence God is still working with that individual? You know, that's an interesting question, and it'll depend on how, what you mean by false God. Um, if you mean that they cherish and, 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 uh, and value a distorted God character, God, God will still, God is always love. God is always shining light down from heaven. The Holy Spirit's always doing what the Holy Spirit does. So the Holy Spirit's always reaching out to reach people. God is God. He doesn't change. But if you value a, a distorted concept, then all that light and truth you'll be rejecting. Oh, uh, that's not God. No, he's not like that. Uh, my God's this way. And as you hold to the distortion and lies, you get damaged by that process. You get, you get, you get changed in a negative way. So you can't develop unhealthy, you can't develop Christ-like character while you're forming your character on false God concepts. Now, on the other hand, somebody who's never necessarily heard the truth about God as representing Christ, and they've seen, as Paul says in Romans 1 and 2, in nature, says in Romans 1, God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. In Romans 2, those who do by nature the things contained in the law or law unto themselves, showing it's been written on their heart. So there is this provision that people who've never had the gospel brought to them in, cl- in the clearest tones, but see God's law of love as it is written in nature, this principles of giving and beneficence, and they respond to the spirits working on their heart, and they practice those principles, even though they haven't heard the story, they're actually being transformed to being like Christ. So I hope that answers the question. Yeah. Yes? Just a clarification on that, because... I know for myself, I was in that camp. Which camp? The camp of not understanding God, not yes. not understanding His character. And yet, if you remain open, yes, to learning, then the change can still occur. So, you know, to say that it's impossible. Well, so, thanks for clarifying, because I meant to say, if I didn't say it clearly, impossible as long as we're holding. To the lies about God. And I was saying, as I described it, I meant to describe holding to the lies. We're rejecting the light. That's what I tried to say. And so that's, but you're exactly right. You could have lies, but if your mind is open where you're a lover of truth and you're willing to follow truth, then what happens over time is truth keeps displacing one lie after another lie after another lie, and you're being transformed by that process. But yes, yeah, the dynamic of rejecting the truth and holding to the lie, what I meant to say. So thanks for clarifying that. That's a great point. Um, it's talking about in the paragraph, in the last paragraph, that Reformation is all about looking to Jesus. That's what it says, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus for what? 
Should that be stated? Or assumed? It's just everybody knows. We all look for the same thing. What are the healthy things we look to Jesus for? I just, these are the obvious ones. Love. Look to Jesus for love. True love, right? What love really is. How about truth? How about wisdom? How about compassion? How about forgiveness? How about grace? How about kindness? I mean, we can look to Jesus for all these things. Assistance, deliverance even. But how about, can we look to Jesus in ways that are actually not helpful or actually harmful? Can we look to Jesus and go to him for things that are harmful? Anyone throw out an example? I've got a bunch of examples. Well, that, that's how you get 33,000 different sects of Christianity. They're all, they're all looking at the same Jesus. Did the, did the Jews in Christ's day, were they looking for Messiah to come? And what did they want him to do? What method did they want him to use? Force, power, authority, to crush and injure, to inflict harm on enemies. Are there any Christians looking for Jesus to do that? This is from uh, Louis Farrakhan, who's actually Islamic, but they also uh, look at Jesus, one of the prophets, and it says this, speaking of Jesus, the Bible says that his second coming, at his second coming, he will have a sword dripping with blood in his hand. He will not, he is not coming back to teach, he is coming back to kill his enemies and his, uh, of his teaching and set up a new kingdom. We look to Jesus for things that are not helpful. Do people look to Jesus for health and wealth? This idea that if you're right with God, you're healthy and wealthy. If you've got sickness in your life or you've had financial difficulties, you must have some sin you haven't confessed. Is that a, hel- is that a helpful approach to look to Jesus? How about... Free ticket to heaven. Looking to Jesus for your, your, your path, your legal payment. Not for transformation. Not for transformation, new heart, right spirit, love God. Not, not for that. For a pass. I got to see what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. I feel like if you look to Jesus for anything that is, like you were talking about earlier about the fear of um, trying to protect yourself. So any of these things, like looking, for, looking to Jesus for a pass in heaven, I'm afraid of who God is. And so I'm looking for him as my escape. So to me, anything that stems from that, and you look to Jesus through that kind of a lens, would be faulty. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I, I, that's well said. Well said. And I think, of, I think of where we are in our maturity. You know, think about parents coming to children. Uh, uh, children come to their parents. In different stages of development. How they can come at, with different levels of maturity. And I think, you know, God... Can you, can you ever imagine God when some of these requests come in? <laughs> I mean, really, can't you just imagine how disappointed he is with some of these... What do you think he felt when David prayed, Happy is the man who takes his enemy's babies and smashes their heads on the rock. <laughs> I mean, but, but I'm glad you came to me with it, David. Thanks for coming to me. At least we're still connected. And then he prayed later, search me and see the wicked way in me, create me a clean heart, O oh God. Okay. Um, how about this one? Because you said when you go in fear. How about if we actually go to God for something that maybe is a good desire, but so could it be harmful? How about this one? Because this, this, this was presented to me when I was in Australia as a problem that has been presented. Pastors tell their, pay, uh, their parishioners with depression to look for Jesus to, and pray more, and their depression will get well. And they don't need to get treatment. Just pray. Now, there are people that listen to their pastor with good heart, and they just pray. And that's all. Hmm. And I've had some come to me that have given up on God because they prayed for years and the depression never went away. And now they don't believe in God. If he's really, I, I prayed sincerely, I was anointed, did all this stuff, and the depression never went away. God, let me tell you, God is a God who can do miracles. It's nothing for him to physiologically fix a physical problem. He can do that like that. It's easy to fix a physical problem. And, and, and depression is often a physical problem with the brain. He could fix neurobiology like that. Just like he can fix cancer, and he can fix lung disease, and he can fix diabetes, and he, he, can, he can do it like that. Well, but, you know, there's a lot of sickness in the world. Why doesn't he just snap his fingers and fix all physical sickness? He could, couldn't he? Why doesn't he? Yes. 
If the original lie was that God's actions are based out of a heart of manipulation, not out of a heart of love, and that was the lie that Satan reported, that you can't trust God, really, because he's just trying to manipulate you. If there was a dome of protection, of if you, if you say you believe in God and went in there, that you would not have sickness, death, cancer, all the rest, then wouldn't everybody flock in there whether or not they knew God's true character? And it would support Satan's lie. So we can be selfish out of fear and not wanting to get punished, or selfish out of gain and wanting to get ahead. Either way, it would still be not truly reflective of God's character. So God needing to be able to have people understand Satan's lie is Satan's lie, the whole uh, plan of salvation. Just people needing to let Satan demonstrate. E- even more. Character development. What does God want for us? We read it earlier. He wants our thoughts to come in harmony with his. He wants us to live like Christ, to have his nature rebuilt within us. Think about what love actually does. If you really love someone more than yourself, think parents about your children, and they're in renal failure, and they're going to die without a kidney. Would you give them your kidney? Wait a minute, you're going to undermine your health. What's more important to you, your own survival or sacrificing yourself for some greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. God is wanting to know, really, are you, are you just more interested in what you want? You want your health problem fixed? Or are you willing to trust me to an internal reality? Do you love me that much that you'll give me some freedom here to fix it for, for good, for all eternity, not just for a few years? See, in, 2,000 years ago, all those people that Christ healed, even Lazarus said he resurrected, as far as we know, what happened over the next 25 to 50 years? They all went back in the grave. Or the ones, the ones who weren't in the grave went there first time. Lazarus went back. This wasn't an eternal fix when he healed the leper. It was not an eternal fix. The eternal fix is healing the mind and heart, not the body. He wants an eternal fix. And then when he comes, the, our promise here now is not for new physiology. Our promise here now is for new character. The new physiology we're promised at the second coming when the mortal puts on immortality and the corruption puts on incorruption. That's when we get the new, the new physiology. But right now, in our broken physiology, and we all, all of our physiologies are broken, even if you get the clean bill of health from your doctor, your physiology is decaying. It's aging. I gotta wear glasses. Didn't used to do that. My body's aging. I can feel it. Don't like it. Yeah, yeah. God wants an eternal fix. So when, when pastors say this kind of stuff, pray, yeah, absolutely pray. If you have a physical problem, pray. But also do everything that you know within the harmonies of law and nature and science that is in harmony with God's design to put your body back in harmony with the way it's supposed to run. So like my one patient, who, the most extreme example, prays for a healthy lung, she needs to quit smoking as well. just praying for healthy lungs and smoking isn't going to get it okay and many of us pray for physical health and and still do many unhealthy things and in the case of when we have an actual disease we pray for the disease cure without taking the disease cure treatment yeah what happens if we look to jesus for our purposes our wishes and the fulfillment of for our, what happens when we look to Jesus for the fulfillment of our purposes, our wishes, and the fulfillment of human carnal desire? Might we pray for vengeance from God on our enemies? David again prayed that. How can it be unbiblical? We can find prayers that say that. But remember, David also prayed, search me and see. Yes. Gene uh, comments, sickness and suffering can in fact give us deep insights into the character of God. As sickness does to the body, so sin does to us. We need healed from sin. Absolutely. That's a metaphor. That's why Christ spent most of his time healing the sick, because it was a metaphor for wanting to heal us from sin. Uh, That's great. great. How about when they pray for the flesh pots of Egypt? Or for a king? They prayed, they went to him, but they went for their carnal desires. And the danger, here's the danger. When we pray to God... For things that go against his will. We want our wants. Here's the danger. If our hearts are determined to have it. If it's not, 
Lord, I really don't know which is the best from my vantage point. I think this is the best thing for me. But God, I really do trust you. And if it's not the best, overrule and don't give me that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your heart set on it and it's like the flesh pots of Egypt and the king. You're insistent on it. You're going to have it. You're going to have your way no matter what. Okay? When you pray to God for that and, and you won't listen, you won't listen to the guidance and counsel, do you realize that he's very likely to let you have your way? Because he doesn't want to lose contact with you. And he would rather let you have your way knowing you're going to get hurt in a relationship with him. So he's there to pick you up, bandage you up, and say, hey, did you learn something from that? Can we go my way now? Then to not let you go your way and have you close him out completely as a control freak and never come back to him. So be careful in our prayers. Monday's lesson, second paragraph, says, here's one simple reality. It is not possible to develop deeply spiritual thoughts if we feed our minds with violence, immorality, greed, and materialism. Uh, it talks about the multiple millions of dollars being spent on the media. Just a quick overview. Um, this fits in with the by beholding we become changed we read earlier. Um, seven studies have shown that any television watching of any kind in children under the age of two delays language development. Doesn't matter what kind it is. Three ABN. Delays language development under two. Doesn't matter. You're going to burn for that statement. <laughs> Once they're older than two, however, it, it, it's, it's the type of, of, of media. If it's theatrical in nature, it actually alters brain development, so they overdevelop emotion circuits, underdevelop the higher cortical circuits of concentration, focus, reason, self-restraint. And so there's more attention problems, more focus problems, more violence and aggression problems for kids who watch theatrical television. G-rated or R-rated, didn't matter, you got the problems. The R-rated would magnify it a little bit, but you got the problems either way. Uh, educational television did not have these problems associated with it. So, and, the, and the big difference is, it's just phys- it's one of those natural laws. If you don't use it, you... This is a law, right? If you don't exercise something, it, it shrinks. If you exercise it, what happens to it? Stronger. Neural circuits are the same way. If you exercise the mood circuits with these theatrical programming while simultaneously turning off thought, then the mood circuits grow stronger, but your capacity to process them grows weaker. Your capacity to redirect and self-restrain grows weaker. So you become more moody, less capable of thinking clearly. But educational television doesn't exercise the mood circuits primarily. They exercise the thought circuits. They're teaching you something. You've got to think. So it doesn't have those negatives associated with it. Average American teen watches 200,000 acts of violence by the time they're a teen on television, 15,000 sexual acts per year, and 2,000 beer and wine commercials a year. With the average American teen. The, uh, more than 50% of teens in America have a television in their bedroom. Teens, television in their bedroom. I'll leave it to you. Um, by the way, the DVDs we put out here, educational programming. <laughs> Thought I'd remind you of that. <laughs> All right, Tuesday's lesson. Uh, it, says, uh, it says in the section to read 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. We all know it, so we don't need to read it. For though, for though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. And then after it asks us to read it, it asks some questions. These questions are very profound. What does it mean to use spiritual weapons? What are those weapons? What does it mean to use them? What kind of weapons would those be? What impact? Think about it. These are spiritual weapons. If you're using a spiritual weapon, what is the effect? What, is, what does the spiritual weapon do when it's utilized? It's huge, guys. I'm about to blow your mind. Bang. Spiritual weapons always heal. They're restorative. They do not injure or cause harm. A weapon that does not injure. Think about it this way. Consider an antibiotic. It is a weapon against disease. What does it do? It destroys the infection while it heals the one infected. God's weapons destroy sin while it heals the sinner. We're using weapons that heal, that are restorative, that are regenerative, that that transform. Those are the spiritual weapons that we use. And the big three, love, 
truth, freedom. Those are the big three. And think about it. Love destroys fear. When, when you experience love, real love, your fear goes away. And love destroys selfishness. That's what it does. And neurobiologically, when you love and you're in that moment of altruistic love, your anterior cortex fires. And your anterior cortex turns off your amygdala. And when you turn off your amygdala, you stop the inflammatory cascade. And studies show that people who love, volunteer, altruistic, give of themselves, live longer, have less disability, less depression, less dementia, stay autonomous longer, live independently longer, more successful in society than people who don't volunteer and help people. When you volunteer, you activate the love circuits. You calm the fear circuits. Meditating on God of love, you know the science, changes the brain in positive ways. Lower heart rate, blood pressure, better memory. Freedom destroys control and coercion. The manipulation of unhealthy relationships and puts relationships in places they can grow. And truth destroys lies and heals the mind. What are the carnal weapons? The big carnal weapons? Lies. Lies believe break the circle of love and trust. Inciting fear, and fear undermines love, increases selfishness, and more self-protective behaviors. And self-protective behaviors result in more fear and greater damage to relationships and mind, body, character. It's all spiral down. Well, I was in Avondale. You're going to love this. A chaplain down there, Wayne French, the chaplain of the, of the, of the university down there, uh, gave me a paper on spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse. Four definitions of spiritual abuse. Let me read these to you. Spiritual abuse is the violation of our trust placed in God by someone who betrays that trust by using God's name to gain entrance into our secret soul, destroying our experience of the goodness of God. In other words, somebody wearing the, the cloth, the clergy, or a Bible teacher, or someone in this position, that we trust and they exploit us and take advantage. How about this one? Spiritual abuse is the exploitation of our sacrificial love for God as a means of advancing organizational and institutional goals, leaving our spirits undernourished and our lives overburdened. What do you think about this definition? Spiritual abuse. Being uh, exploiting our sacrificial love to advance organizational institutional goals. How about this one? Spiritual abuse is the addictive power of legalistic theology that creates guilt in order to dispense grace, leaving us spiritual cripples bound to one another by the inevitable cords of codependency. Man, this is good stuff. Man, no wonder they were happy to see me down there. <laughs> They're already on board. I mean, this is good stuff. Is that in your notes? Yes, yeah, in the notes. And this fourth one. Spiritual abuse is the silent cancer of secret gossip and malicious rumor that causes a feeding frenzy among the sharks submerged in the troubled waters of church conflicts. We are unaware of the damage until we stand up and attempt to walk out and find we have no legs. Mm-hmm. Isn't it true? These are good, aren't they? Yeah, actually. Yeah. Spiritual abuse. And what is the underlying root to all of these? Selfishness. And what kind of a God concept do you think is attached to all of these? Satanic. Yeah, and the imposing authoritarian God concept. That's what's there. It's not that that God concept you see in Christ. So are these, these these, these four I just read, examples of carnal weapons? These are carnal weapons. These are weapons that destroy, they damage. They are not spiritual weapons. So why is it so important to bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ? As the scripture says that we read. Why is that so important? That's normal. He's our designer. He's our designer. Do you want to change? Neurobiologically, there there are proteins that cause your your neurons to grow and sprout new connections. One of those is called brain-derived, comes from the brain, neurotrophic factor, BDNF, BDNF doesn't come off the, the, the DNA as BDNF. It comes off the DNA as a pro, precursor protein called pro-BDNF. Now, BDNF is like fertilizer for the neurons. If it hits the neural circuit, it will sprout new connections, new neurons will grow, all this kind of stuff. If pro-BDNF, though, which is the precursor proton, hits the axon, dendrite, it, it's like weed killer. It kills it. What determines whether you get the, the weed killer or the, or the, um, 
or the fertilizer is whether there's an enzyme present that will cleave the, the pro-BDNF that's coming off the DNA into the a fertilizer, which will cause the circuit to grow. And what determines whether that, we, that enzyme is there is the activity of the neural circuit itself. If the neural circuit is fired, as it fires, it produces this enzyme. Pro-BDNF will be cleaved to BDNF. That neural circuit will then sprout, make new connections. New neurons will be recruited. So you're doing any activity in life, taking piano lessons, learning a new speech class, studying a new book for a new college class, whatever. You're trying to memorize new things, new behaviors, new activities. You're causing new energy, energy, electricity, fire down new budding pathways. And as you do that, this enzyme is produced, which will cleave pro-BDNF into BDNF, which now new circuits, if you keep firing this day after day, new connections will make, new neurons will be recruited, moves, and, and the complexity grows. So not only have a bigger a language based on this language you're learning, you have the syntax, the ability to enunciate improves, okay? But then you graduate, years go by, you don't use that. What happens? The enzyme's not being, you're not firing the circuit, enzyme's not produced, pro-BDNF's not made, BDNF, uh, excuse me, BDNF's not made, pro-BDNF is there, and the circuit starts being pruned back. This is neurobiologic change. Without this, we couldn't lose. We couldn't undo what you were talking about earlier. So we bring every thought into captivity. Why? Because we've discovered that if you do things in your imagination, functional scans show, if you're imagining doing it, you're firing the same circuit as if you're doing it. So we can take a pedophile and we can lock them in prison where they can't behaviorally act out. Can we control their imagination? And if they do it in their imagination for 20 years, they can come out a more recidivist pedophile than when they went in. We have to bring the thoughts into captivity of Jesus Christ. That changes us neurobiologically and changes our character. That's why the earlier text, we think his thoughts. Changing the thoughts changes us. What we believe has power over us, so be careful what you believe. Third paragraph is quoted on Tuesday's lesson. Billy Graham is quoted as saying, you cannot stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from nesting in your hair. And the question I have about this idea is, where do we draw the line between our responsibility to turn away and trying to control those around us and not put temptation before us? Should we have every woman in society wear a burqa covering themselves from head to toe so no male ever gets tempted by a female body? Or do we have a responsibility if we see something that tempts us to turn our mind, from, our, our eyes away from it? Where do you draw the line? What do we need to protect kids from advertisers? Where do we draw the line? And do you notice the method used? I'll just tell you the quick method. Governments of Earth use the method of coercion, pass laws with sanctions and punishments to stop advertisers and people from putting things before the, the immature. God's government and his method is to transform the heart so you have a society that everybody loves everybody else more than themselves and would never want to do anything to injure another person in the first place. And our goal is to reach out with a gospel message that transforms hearts. And when we get to the new heaven and the earth, there'll never need to be a, uh, an angel with a flaming sword on every corner to keep us safe because everyone there would rather die than do anything to hurt somebody else. They love everybody more than themselves. That's God's method. Wednesday's lesson. We're flying this week, guys. You know how we're flying? <laughs> talks about the relationship between mind and body. And it talks about uh, lifestyles. It said, it said that our lifestyles should be brought into harmony with, with, with God's principles, our lifestyles. Studies show that those who eat junk food, fast food, have 40% higher rates of depression than those don't. New study came out about two weeks ago, showed that children who drink soda, and it's a dose-dependent thing, one to four, one day, have higher rates of attention, inattention, inattention, and violence and aggression problems, concentration problems, impulse control problems, than those who drink no soda. And it didn't matter the type. Diet, sugar, caffeine, caffeine-free, didn't matter. Um, it was, uh, the children were, you know, I, I got to look that up. No, it was older than four. It could have been in some under four included, but it was, it was, it was, I'll go back and look it up. But uh, children who did this, the point being, um, and the factors, sugar was a factor. So if they had drank the sugar drink, you got that. Caffeine was a factor. If you got caffeine, it was a, and the, and then um, the aspartame and the, and the non-sugar sweeteners were factors. And it didn't matter what you drank. If you drank sodas, you're going to have behavior and attention problems. It affects the brain. And it was dose dependent. The more they drank, the worse it got. Hmm. Sleep deprivation impairs prefrontal cortex. If you're sleep deprived, you're going to be irritable and moody. I'm jet lagged, so if I snap at you, 
<laughs> Just give me grace. Give me grace. We, we, where we were uh, in Singapore and Perth, it's uh, 12 hours ahead of where we are here. So it's uh, 11.15 at night tonight. Where we were in Brisbane and Sydney, it's 14 hours ahead of where we are. So it's 1 a.m. tomorrow morning where they are right now. So we were there for three weeks, and we came back Sunday, and we're still kind of a little kind of off a little bit. Probably noticed I'm missing some words today, and I've mispronounced a few things if you watch that. That's neurobiologic because my prefrontal cortex is half asleep, and word selection's a little off. So, <laughs> Obesity. Obesity. What? A study, I think, a study of a five-year-old in yeah. one of four servings a day. Oh, five-year-olds. Okay, thank you. Good. Five-year-olds. That's the age. Five-year-olds. Good. 3,000 of them, yeah. Obesity increases inflammation, damages brain cells. Obese persons at age 70 have 8% less brain mass than 70-year-olds of normal weight. 8%. And their brain looks 16 years older. So instead of looking like a 70-year-old brain, it looks like an 86-year-old brain. Okay. Obese people at age 70 have a brain that has lost 8% of its mass and appears 16 years older than it is compared to 70-year-olds of normal weight. I mean, the reality is you don't have any obese 70-year-olds that live that. <laughs> well, they, actually, they had him for the study. Okay? They had him for the study. But that's another point. And the reason why, it's the same factor. The reason that causes the early death is the reason that causes the brain to shrivel, and that is obesity is extremely inflammatory. Oh, the obese, the, the fat tissue itself uh, uh, interferes with the anti-inflammatory enzymes in our body and creates inflammatory um, molecules that actually are very damaging, um, as well as increasing the risk of diabetes and increasing the um, uh, circulatory problems and other things. Um, last paragraph, and I'm not even sure what day we're on now. Wednesday. Let's, says the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not limit himself to one aspect of our lives when he convicts us of a need for growth. Reformation is not one-dimensional. The Spirit longs to bring our lives into total conformity. And, and there's talking about the physical lifestyle practices that are brought into harmony with his will. Maybe we'll close on this idea. What are physical lifestyle practices that are in harmony with his will? Following what it says in the Bible? How many believe that? Following what it says in the Bible? So let's go get some kosher meats and eat them. That's what it says, right? Can you find vegetarianism taught in the Bible? Other than Eden. Once they left Eden, can you find it? You really believe that? You believe that every Passover, they didn't actually have a sacrificial lamb? No, but I mean... So they weren't vegetarian. Way. No, the, 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 the Daniel group was not about vegetarianism. The Daniel group was about not eating meats offered to the, the idols of Babylon so that the king wouldn't think that their intelligence was from their, their gods. That's why they avoided the, moot, the, the foods. And so I, I think that Daniel and his three friends are pretty loyal to God's, and as far as they could practice God's principles, they were doing it, and they, I suspect they kept Passover. Which means they ate lamb each year. Which is pretty good. <laughs> now, what I, I'm messing with you here a little bit, and here's why I'm messing with you. Because there's two levels of thinking. There is the list of the rules. God, list it out for me. Tell me how to behave, what to do, where to go, how high to jump. And then there are principles, design protocols of life. You can absolutely make a case for vegetarianism when you understand God's design. You can't make a case if you're looking for a list of rules. So if you're a rules lister... You're in trouble. But if you're a principles person, understanding God's design, and wanting to move towards Eden, then you can make the case. And so, we look at lifestyles that underline God's design. What about excessive study? This is out of a book called Child Guidance, page 396. Intemperance in study is a species of intoxication, and those who indulge in it, like the drunkard, Wander from the safe paths and stumble and fall into the darkness. I won't go on, but it's talking about exhausting your mental abilities through study. Do they read that over at the college? <laughs> don't study too much, kids. Be careful. Don't drink, don't do drugs, and don't study too much. <laughs> Bet they don't get that, do they? But the, but the principle, see, this, this, some people take rules and just listen. No, it's a principle. And do you understand the principle? We don't want to exhaust our energies. 
Medical schools should take this into account, huh, Wendell? <laughs> yeah, I think I might have overstudied a few years back then. Yeah. But this is the principles that we should live by. And then <clears throat> Thursday's lesson, it talks about a lifestyle, what that lifestyle looks like. I'm not going to go into it all. I had a lot of examples in here, but I'm going to just sum up with this. In my view, the primary central element to living a different lifestyle that the world recognizes is living one that's not self-centered. We live to love God and love others, seeking humbly to help and be service to other people. It's not whether you wear a yarmulke or a burqa. It's not even which day you go to, to, to church on. If you're not loving God, remember Paul said, if I have all these things, I'm just a sounding symbol if I don't have love. The primary thing that separates us is to reveal God's character in the way we live. That's the lifestyle. And so sadly, many church organizations have this other list of no jewelry, girls can't wear pants, have to wear dresses, you you can't wear makeup, you've got to do all this external stuff so when people look at you, you look like a freak in society. But you don't love people. You're proud and arrogant. I'm, I'm, I'm not a sinner like you with the jewelry on. What is that? That's not like Christ. Now, I'm not discounting modesty. But it has to start with a heart that loves. Start with a heart that loves. And that's the lifestyle. If you want to live a lifestyle that shows God, love people. Love people. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you'll send your spirit to fill us with, with wisdom and discernment, but, but also the spirit to fill us with your love, that we can love you and we can love people so that we can stand out distinct and people see something different, that we're kind, we're patient, we're compassionate. And we represent you rightly, and the world will see it. We'll awaken to the, to the misery of being separate from you. And you will come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen.